In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about how cancer can affect our marriages. For many of us, when we exchanged our vows, we made promises in sickness and in health. But who among us expected that promise to be rocked by cancer, and cancer arriving so early? The latest wildfire is out now on this very topic. It's our fourth time publishing a love and intimacy issue, and I hope you'll pick up the issue today. You can do that over at wildfirecommunity.org. I personally was married six years when cancer became the third wheel in my marriage. Since then, I've had a lot of guilt about what my husband has had to endure because of my cancer financial strain, fertility difficulties, menopause disrupting our blueprint for intimacy. And through it all, I came to realize that even though he wasn't the one diagnosed with breast cancer, he has his own breast cancer story. He and I are still married, but I know a lot of you listening weren't married or even necessarily in a relationship at all when you were diagnosed, which has its own challenges for finding love. And others of you were with someone when you were diagnosed who is no longer by your side now. And that's the case for my guest today. Beth Gaynor was 39 when she was diagnosed with stage 1C breast cancer. She's an author, an educator, and a professional writer and editor. Welcome to The Burn, Beth. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks so much. So you're here to read a piece that you wrote called First Comes Cancer, Then Comes Divorce. This is an essay you wrote several years ago and appeared in our very first Love and Intimacy issue back in 2016. Right. So after you read, we will chat about everything in your essay as well as long-term survivorship. And those of you listening, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat with Beth. All right, Beth, I'll let you take it away. Okay, thank you. So how is your relationship now that you've had breast cancer, asked the Cancer Wellness Program intake worker. My husband and I are holding hands. I would say it's stronger. We've become closer than ever, I tell her. Great, the intake worker enthusiastically responds. Cancer can strengthen the bond between couples. Luckily, that is the case for you both as well. I'm relieved. I have believed the feel-good lie I just told her. Ask any of our mutual friends and they will tell you, my husband and I are the perfect couple. As college sweethearts, we had a wonderfully close four-year courtship. Our wedding is beautiful. It's the marriage that is a Ferris wheel run amok. About a month after our wedding, my spouse developed severe OCD and paranoia. Four years later, he is diagnosed with multiple sclerosis 
that finds him visually impaired and even more mentally impaired. I am supportive, attending all his doctor visits, and am proactive in his care. He stops working, but he refuses to apply for disability, and this is the point of contention. He won't get the help he needs and we need as a couple. I arrange for a social worker to help him apply for disability, but my husband refuses to get the help. I am the caregiver for 12 years of our 16-year marriage. I must work two jobs to keep us financially afloat. I stay awake nights thinking about the prospect of homelessness, not too far-fetched. If something should happen to me, I'm frightfully aware, I know we won't survive. The stress is unbearable. I eat right and exercise, but sleep deprivation and worry and anxiety are downright unhealthy. Nevertheless, I am resolved that I will stay with him until death do us part. I do not believe in divorce. A few months before our 15th anniversary, the unthinkable has happened. I've been diagnosed with breast cancer. My husband promises to take care of me, but the tragedy is he can't and he won't, emotionally and physically. I beg him to get some income coming in to draw from his mom's inheritance just so I can work only one job while I'm going through treatments. My oncologist wants me on chemotherapy at the same time as radiation. It's going to be tough. I need to work just one job. My husband promises he will draw from the inheritance so that my life can be a little easier while I undergo treatments for breast cancer. A few days later, he changes his mind. He is keeping all of the inheritance money, he says, because he is planning. He has been planning to leave me for some time now and needs a nice nest egg. I cry and beg him to stay. I can't face cancer without my life partner. He stays, but I still face cancer and its treatments without a partner. Despite my situation, I'm still the caregiver working a full and part-time job and getting chemotherapy and radiation simultaneously. I seek emotional help from the American Cancer Society, Gilda's Club Chicago, and the Cancer Wellness Program. My husband accompanies me to the latter's intake appointment. He goes with me for the first appointment with my radiation and medical oncologists and the first chemotherapy session. I'm so panicked about cancer and treatments and doctors that I don't even consider the fact that my new team of doctors must think we are a great couple. Everyone thinks we are a great couple. They marvel at the sweet man who is supporting his wife. It is all an illusion. My spouse decides that after these initial doctor visits, I'm on my own. He never goes to radiation therapy with me. Monday through Friday, I drive myself to radiation then take a train to work, then take a train back to the residential area where I park my car, then drive home. A 12-hour day. This continues for 33 days, and I come home to someone unstable day after day. I get chemo on Thursday, so I take Thursday and Friday off for my healthily accumulated vacation days. After his first and only chemotherapy appearance, he tells me that chemo is too toxic for him to be around. I tell him, if you are afraid of your exposure to chemo, what do you think it's doing to me? He doesn't seem to care. Years of selfishness and mental problems have added up, and the toll is heavy. I pay the price, in some strange way, so does he. I do radiation alone. I do chemotherapy alone. 
I see my doctors alone. I envy those patients whose spouses and family members have come to support them. Some feel sorry for me and take care of me during my treatment. A warm blanket, apple juice. I miss my husband, but things have been so bad between us. I figure I'm better off doing all of this alone. An employee from the American Cancer Society tells me, frankly, I don't know how you're even standing given your treatment and work schedule. Truth is, I have no choice. I'm in survival mode. I will process what has happened to me later. After treatment is over, I spend a year in aftershock. Our relationship is now severed beyond repair, and we are strangers to each other. We lie in bed at night next to each other, but we have nothing to say to each other. During the year after my last treatment, I decide that I didn't fight so hard to live just to be miserable for the rest of my life. The marriage dies. It is already on the outs, but breast cancer hastens the inevitable. I still love my ex-husband. I always will. But breast cancer has weakened an already compromised relationship. And frankly, I'm glad the relationship ends. And that's when I realize that divorce means my life is just beginning. Thank you for that, Beth. That was so powerful. I Thank you. I'm just really, I'm really indebted to you for sharing such a powerful story and I'm excited for us to talk about it. Yes. So we'll take a quick break here and when we come back, we'll get into it. Hey, it's me again. I'm joined for a moment by my teammate, Emily Purcell, to tell you about something really big we've been working on behind the scenes. As you know, there is a wildfire book out in the world. We worked really hard on this book and we are just loving the reception it has been receiving. The book is an anthology a best of wildfire. It's what I like to call 50 under 50. That's 50 personal essays from people diagnosed with breast cancer under 50, taking us deep into their lives post-diagnosis. We called the book Igniting the Fire Within, and it's really powerful. But what would make it even more powerful is to hear those essays directly from the writers themselves. Their own voices, their own inflections, reading their own words. Many of them have already joined us here on The Burn as our guests, and likely you have heard them here and there. We are going to do this one better for you, though. Coming to your ears, starting in May, Emily and I are going to be releasing a special mini offshoot of The Burn podcast called simply Igniting the Fire Within. It will feature just the essays from the book. Subscribe to The Burn so you don't miss this very special audio broadcast of Igniting the Fire Within. And if you don't have the book yet, you can pick it up on Amazon today. Hi, my name is Megan Nathanson. In 2019, I was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer at the age of 45. This diagnosis was within weeks of a dear friend who had also recently been diagnosed. Throughout our treatment, my friend and I became like sisters, navigating this difficult path together. It didn't matter that we had different challenges or made different decisions. Eventually, my friend introduced me to Wildfire Magazine and the Wildfire community, encouraging me to share my writing about what was similar in our experiences. It took me a while, but finally, I submitted a story for consideration. I hoped my piece would be selected for the community issue, because while the presence and impact of cancer in my body had grown smaller, my sense of connection with all those surrounding me had blossomed there may be no conveyance to the great beyond more powerful than the heart of a fellow traveler. To my delight, the piece I'd written 
There Can Be Joy, was chosen to appear in a spread of gorgeous pages that launched in August, September, 2021. Although Wildfire focuses primarily on the lives of women who have experienced breast cancer, I believe the stories shared within the magazine and on the Burn podcast transcend the singular topic, meeting anyone who reads or listens with an inspiring message. We can all grow and reflect on the human experience, celebrating our own unique survival. All right. Thanks so much for the love, Megan. Welcome back, Beth. Thank you again for your powerful writing. Ah, thank you. So we published this a while ago. I mentioned that it came out in the 2016 wildfires. So I have two questions for you. Um, but right off, has it been a while since you have read it or or is it maybe a little fresher for you? Um, it's been a while. I've I've um, you know, it's been a while since I um published it. So um, you know, it's not it doesn't have any fresh wounds. I can actually read it with some distance that I didn't have when I was writing it. Yeah, I I really love that you brought that up because I wanted to talk to you about this idea of writing from this the place of a scar versus, mm-hmm. you know, the freshness of a wound. And sometimes writing helps us to build up that scar tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember what it, you know, where you kind of were in the process when you actually wrote it? Well, um, I was already divorced when I wrote it, but I felt... Um, It was fresh and raw to me still um, when I was writing it. And, um, you know, in some ways I had to kind of distance myself in order to tell the story because it's all about storytelling, you know, telling our stories so that we can um, share and feel less alone in the world. That's exactly right. And I know that this story is highly relatable to a lot of people and one of the reasons I'm so glad that you're telling it and that you're, you know, being here today, but also that we published it is that this is a harder part of the breast cancer fallout, aftermath, aftershock, as you wrote it. And I don't think a lot of people talk about it enough because of the shame that can come with it. It can feel like our fault that cancer came into the marriage to begin with. Right. Did you deal with a lot of that guilt too? I know I had a lot of guilt in mine. Yes, I felt I felt guilty. Um, I felt that, you know, cancer kind of came into this um, you know, marriage. And um, in a way now looking back though, I'm grateful that not grateful that I had cancer, but certainly grateful that the marriage did end because it was um, a very, very poor marriage. So, um, you know, but distance really has helped me write this. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're coming at this kind of, um, circularly, I guess. Can you tell us how long it's been since your diagnosis now? Um, it's been, um, let me think it's been 22 years. That's big. 22 years. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Thank you. That's huge. Yes. Thank you. Well, and I love what you just said too about how, and I'm summarizing, but you, you know, you basically said that the marriage needed to die so that you could move into this next part. Right. Can you give us an update on, on these years since? Yes. Um, you know, like many who were diagnosed young, um, I found myself infertile from chemotherapy treatment. 
And that was very difficult because I felt like, you know, with my marriage ending, I didn't know if I would ever get a partner or, you know, and what am I going to do? Um, well, my life got really good after I um, got a divorce because I, I went through an adoption um, and I adopted a beautiful baby girl from China. And, um, you know, and it's been wonderful. She's now 14. And um, I get to experience motherhood, even though fertility was taken from me. Oh, I love hearing that. I have a 14-year-old too. So oh. I, I'm right there in the middle with you. Um, yeah. High school years, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I love that you are experiencing this this next chapter because I'm sure when you were right in the thick of it, you know, doing those long chemo slash radiation days, which by the way, sounds insane to me now. Um, but I'm sure you couldn't see any light at the end of that tunnel. It felt probably like you were just in this in this bad place that you would just live in. Yes. But there's almost always an after, right? It's like just we just can't see it yet, whatever it will be. Right. Absolutely. And um, at the time, like you said, you know, when you're in it, it just feels like there's no future. You know, I felt like all I have to focus on is one step at a time, literally, um, as I walked, you know, counting my steps because I had no energy. And so I felt there was not going to be a good life. Um, if I were lucky enough to be post-cancer. And mm -hmm. I found out that I was actually wrong about that, that my life is extremely fulfilling um, since, you know, cancer became kind of on the back, back burner. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Do you have any advice for someone who might be going through what, you know, right now, what you were going through then? Yeah, I would say... While you're in it, it's really rough, but you got to hang in there because, you know, after you get through this diagnosis, you just don't know what life has for you, you know? And um, in fact, when I moved out um, of our condo, um, I was in an apartment and the movers saw me crying. And they said, what's the matter? And I said, I, well, I, my husband and I have broken up. And they said, well, your life's just beginning. And I thought he was on crack or something. I was like, you know, I just, I was like, what do you mean? You know? So, um, but it, it, it did, it, it just began in a great way. I love that you just told that story because other people looking in can see that there is going to be more to your story, more to your your life, and that that right. particular moment isn't going to be the end all. But when right. you're in it, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's so yeah. scary to imagine anything different. Yeah, you just don't know. And then, you know, after after cancer treatment, you know, and I'm lucky enough that it was over. Um but afterwards, you know, you wind up going, what happened to me? And I share this story with quite a number of women. And it's a remarkable how many people have suffered 
um, either infidelities, you know, their spouse has been unfaithful or um, divorce or separation. Um, it's it's rampant out there. It's true. And I think there's also a lot of people who stay in a marriage where their partner wasn't able to show up for them during, you know, cancer treatment or other hard times in the way that they really expected. Yes. It's interesting to me because I feel like when we're going through cancer, a lot of people have this, I don't know, this phrase they say of like, oh, you're so strong. You're the strongest person I know. And almost every single survivor I've talked to has had the the reaction to that of like, well, what choice did I have? You know, I just put my head down and I went through it. And then when we hear stories like yours, where there's someone by your side who couldn't just put their head down and do that work with you, it's it's really confusing, I guess, baffling. Like it's hard, but but it's true. There are just some people who can't do that work with us. Right. You know, in your story, you talked about how you begged him to stay and you said you didn't want to do cancer alone and ultimately you realized that you were still doing it alone. Do you do you wish you would have, you know, let him go at that point or do you feel that the timing all worked the way it needed to? I think that's a really good question. I think the timing really did work the way it needed to. Um, You know, I feel like had he left, perhaps I'd be in a worse state emotionally. And as you know, when you go through cancer diagnosis and treatment, you need to be as strong as you can. Um, and I, I agree, you know, I, I have heard many comments about me being strong and brave, but in reality, you know, you're scared out of your mind and you just hunker down, like you said, and, you know, just go through the treatments you have to. It's true. You just walk that path. Yes. And for a lot of people, because of that, it's the years following that are scarier and harder almost, you know, if if you're able to be out of treatment, if you have a period of no evidence of disease, then suddenly you find yourself being the trailblazer yourself. And that can be really terrifying. Was that the case for you? Did you find it a little disorienting? Yes, I felt after treatment, I remember going on a commuter train to work and thinking, um, what just happened to me, you know, <laughs> and um, this this aftershock that happened um, that it's almost worse than when going when I was going through the treatment because there was a lot of fear and, um, you know, many years of it. And, um, you know, I currently have PTSD. And so there are things I am grappling with. But um, life in general has gotten so much better for me. So um, I can't begrudge, you know, what happened, but it's it's hard. That is. So you're 22 years out now. I'm glad you mentioned the PTSD. I'm sorry you're dealing with that. And it's also very uh, relatable and rampant in the in the cancer community. What role does cancer play as part of your identity at this point or how, I guess, where do you sit with it 22 years out? Yeah, you know, it's funny. 22 years out, I'm an unlikely wanting, (laughs) unlikely cancer survivor. Like I don't, I don't want to be part of the cancer community in some ways because 
I want to move on. But you really can't move on because it does become a part of your identity. And so, you know, I'm kind of um, reluctant to call myself a cancer survivor. I don't know what the word or the proper phrase would be, um, but I do want to move on, but I know I, I can't. There are so many people that I care about who've fallen ill to this disease, who are dying, who have died. Um, you know, one of my best friends died of breast cancer. So there is that survivor's guilt element. And um, I guess, you know, cancer is a part of my identity, whether or not I like it. It's true. It's true. Is it in conversation with your daughter or how does cancer play a role in in that relationship? Yeah, my daughter knows. I'm honest with her. Um, And she um, is fine with it. Um, She, you know, it's funny. She she's 14, but she wants to be a researcher and um, cure cancer. Um, And it's Mm. not something I told her I wanted her to do, but she's very science driven. So, um, you know, so it's just kind of interesting that that's something that is on her mind. And she's very compassionate about um, my experience in the past. Um, And, uh, you know, luckily life is in a hectic, frenetic sort of normal with the teenager. Um, But um, I think she's she's proud of me, um, you know, for telling my story. Um, she's someone who's very to herself, so quite Mm -hmm. different perspectives. Sure. Well, I honestly think that these kids who grow up with us and watch us in our survivorship are different for it. You know, not all of them will, you know, fold cancer into their own identity necessarily, but I do think that having watched a parent endure those either cancer treatment itself or just the years following it leaves a mark and that's something that I think about a lot at wildfires you know cancer affects all these different relationships whether they're marriages or you know romantic relationships or just these people who are so close to us it has these long ripples that go out from us absolutely yeah very true. So I want to, in the time um, we have left, ask you about the role of writing. I know you're a writer and mm-hmm. um, are actively writing. So what, um, well, first of all, are you working on any projects right now that you want to share with us or what What does writing look like in your life right now? Yeah, I've, I've been a writer for as long as I can remember. Um, and um Right now, the big project that I'm working on is writing a book of poetry um, on having breast cancer, um, being diagnosed and treated for breast cancer as a younger person. So the book, you know, covers things like infertility, things that might not um, be emphasized for people who are older when they get diagnosed. So that's um, near and dear to my heart. Um, So. I'm, you know, writing the poems. I'm the collection's almost finished. And um, you know, um, I'm still putting out my experience um in order to 
be a part of a community and help others. So um, that's the project that I'm doing now. Oh, I like that a lot. And we need more age-specific resources for sure for the younger um, community here. Yeah. So you may have just answered this, but I'm so curious why this project is is calling for your attention now, even though, like you said, you're 22 years out, you would hope to move away from the cancer community, but it keeps kind of pulling you back in. So why why is this project important to you? Why do you feel this is important now? Well, that's a good question. Um, basically, I started the poetry about... Um, about 15 years ago. So I was less out of the woods, um, you know, 15 years ago. So um, I started writing it. And then my oncologist calls me and says, hey, um, the MRI revealed something um, in your breast that had cancer. And so I got really scared and I stopped writing. And I was just focusing on, is it benign? Is it cancerous? And then luckily it was benign, it was scar tissue. Um, but then I decided to have um, a double mastectomy. And so for that year, I was preparing for the medical, um, the double mastectomy. And then after that, I was going through emotional, like, you know, grief and all of those body image issues, things that normally affect, you know, obviously people who've had surgeries. And um, so it kind of got put off. But I decided that now, you know, I got to get back to it. I had a lot of poems written already. So it really is from the younger person's point of view, even though I'm no longer in that age range at this time. Wow. Just listening to you talk about the MRI, you know, that scan anxiety that we all can experience or all can relate to rather. And also, you know, having a double mastectomy years out, it's such a good illustration of these aftershocks, you know, that yes. keep happening and you don't, you can't plan for them necessarily. And then all of a sudden here it is in your life again, and you're right back in it. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that you're working on this project. We will definitely be linking to you, um, to your work in the show notes. Will you tell us where, where writers can find more of your work? Well, um, you know, it's funny. I, I used to have a blog. I don't blog um, anymore about it because I've been busy writing other sorts of things. Um, I'm trying to think, I guess if you, um, I can give my email address if you would like. Sure. Are you open to people reaching out to you? Sure. It's um, Beth, B-E-T-H-L, Gainer, G-A-I-N-E-R, at gmail.com. Perfect. We will be sure to put that in the show notes as well. Yes. Well, Beth, thank you so much for being here with me today. I really have appreciated our conversation and for you sharing your story with us. Yes, it's been wonderful being here. Thank you so much for, for this. Absolutely. Well, today's writer and guest was Beth Gaynor. Her piece was called First Comes Cancer, Then Comes Divorce. This was in our May 2016 issue of Wildfire Magazine called Love in the Time of Cancer. All of you subscribers will find this issue in the Wildfire Library. 
And I'm April Stearns. Thank you so much for being here with me. You've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our 40 plus issues in the wildfire archives and to take a writing workshop with me. There is no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. Don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. If you like what you hear, please leave us a starred review to help others find their way to writing the stories that need to be told. All right, here is your writing prompt. I want you to set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping or editing. When it comes to love and intimacy, one thing that's true for me today is. So again, that was when it comes to love and intimacy, one thing that's true for me today is. Let's start with what you know to be true. So that's eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. Happy writing, thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.